Acts chapter 5. This chapter is really a, a pivotal chapter in church history, a pivotal moment, because as the early church is getting stronger and the gospel is spreading, the opposite, we're going to read that in chapter 7, be the fossil who was merged. Saul at that point goes on a rampage. He goes around hunting and killing Christians anywhere he can find them in an attempt to try to destroy the church. But as the persecution increases, it's interesting how this works, Jesus' followers become more bold. And they become more committed and they become more fervent about spreading the gospel throughout the world. And I believe a large part of that is because of this moment in Acts 5, which is a, a huge catalyst for the spread of the gospel. And it's a, it's a catalyst because I think for the first time, the apostles see one of their very sworn enemies turned in his conviction. All of a sudden, everything that Jesus taught them, everything they saw in the power of the resurrection, everything that they knew at Pentecost, now is being clearly laid out. And they have a greater understanding of the life-changing power of the gospel for someone that is violently opposed to them. They see for the first time the power of the Spirit beyond Pentecost, and I think even in a greater way than Pentecost, to use them to change the world. So let's set the scene here, and we're not going to read these verses just because of time, but look at verse 17. The high priest and the Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrection, they're angry and they're jealous, that's the word the Spirit uses, about the attention and the influence of the church. Wouldn't it be awesome if the world was jealous of us? If the world was jealous of the church because of the attention that we're getting for the power of our faith. I was thinking about that last night as I was finishing up. I thought, boy, that if there's something I crave right now, it's that. That, that we'd be so bold and so open and so, uh, so clear with the gospel that people would be jealous of our, of our fervor. Well, that's what's happening. So they arrest all the apostles and they put them in a public jail, but the Lord has other plans because in the middle of the night, an angel comes and releases them. And as the dawn is breaking, they go right back to the temple and start to preach about Jesus. Of course, the high priest is going to be pretty ticked off about that. But he gathers the whole council together before he gets the word. And this, this includes the Pharisees. It includes the Sadducees. It includes 70 of the elders of the Sanhedrin. And it includes 116 judges. Now, he says, as he gathers that uh, austere group together. He says, bring the apostles before me. He orders them, bring them now. We're going we're gonna to deal with this once and for all. And when you think about it, that would be a pretty intimidating courtroom, wouldn't it? You've got hundreds of people that are highly influential, that have outstanding authority in the nation, who have been seen as spiritual leaders, and now they are all standing against you, determined to shut you up. The apostles have never experienced anything like that. They've never faced that kind of situation. Well, imagine the surprise when the guards go to get all the apostles out of jail and there's nobody there. They look around like, hey, Charlie, did you let them out? What happened here? Why is this not locked up? What, what happened here? And they start to run all around town. Where are these guys? What happened? Who, who let them out? There's all kinds of accusations and finger pointing. And finally, they go to the temple and they find that the apostles aren't hiding. They didn't run away to Galilee because they don't want to be arrested again. They've gone right back to the very place that they were offending somebody. They went right back into the temple and started to preach. 
And look at what happens next. Because in verse, let me see which, where I can find it. In verse 26, they say, bring them back. But do so without a scene. Don't, don't have any violence. Don't make this a thing. Because at this point, we're kind of scared of the people. So gently ask them, could you guys come back and just meet with us? We just have a little, little meeting here. Just, let's just talk. And the apostles willingly come back. Verse 27, when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, name of Jesus. And yet you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the other apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. There's a good life principle, right? The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you, clearly possess a pronoun, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, verse 33, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Now the apostles' defense is strong and it's right. We have to obey God before we obey man. And if the two are in conflict, we're choosing God. And they say, we have the power of God behind us. The Holy Spirit's with us. The truth is there. We're going to continue to declare Jesus, whom, by the way, you put on the cross, but he's not on the cross anymore. And by the way, if you can find his body, go ahead, because he's not there, because the tomb's empty, because he rose again. And that puts you guys in a difficult situation. That's all between the lines, but it's there. So now you guys are telling us to shut up, and we're not going to shut up because Jesus rose again, and we're now going to tell everybody that we want to about that. Now that's a pretty brazen approach when you're standing before a couple hundred people who are very intimidating, especially because these guys had crucified Jesus. So some scrawny fishermen and tax collectors aren't going to intimidate them. And they're really looking for a fight. The, the Sanhedrin's looking for a fight. They want to get rid of this insurrection, this rebellion, this movement of Christianity once and for all. The disciples had really become a thorn in their side. And people were still talking about Jesus. And, and thousands had responded at Pentecost. And there was some kind of spiritual movement there. And, and now they're even defying their authority. So when the apostles kind of stand up and say, we're not going to do that, forget you, we're not going to listen to you, we don't stand by your authority, we're going to do our own thing. The anger, verse 33, is real. The text says that they wanted to kill them. And they had the clout and the resources to do so. So it would seem at this point that the future of the church is at risk, unless... The Lord intervenes. And what's fascinating here is that God doesn't speak verbally to the Sanhedrin. He doesn't put writing on the wall. He doesn't strike them all down. Instead, a very unlikely person speaks up in defense of the apostles. And it starts in verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, 
Take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, not the one who was a disciple, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it'll be overthrown. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Or else you may be even found fighting against God. Now Gamaliel stands up and gets everybody's attention. Says, all right, everybody chill out for a minute. Take a break, take a time out, calm down. Send these guys out for a little bit. I got something to say. There's a burden on my heart that I need to share with you, and you need to hear it. Now, the reason Gamaliel was able to get that attention and get everybody to listen to him is because there were three characteristics about him that caused people to listen. And these really have spiritual application for us in terms of how do we get people to listen when we talk about the gospel. First of all, let's see that people listen to Gamaliel because he had personal and spiritual credibility. Gamaliel had personal and spiritual credibility. The phrase in verse 34 is important. It says he was respected by all the people, not just the Sanhedrin, not just his peers, but by everyone. And that didn't just happen because he was a teacher of the law. Listen, the Pharisees had offended enough people with their arrogance and their condescension that just being a teacher of the law wouldn't be enough. In fact, that would almost make people see him as kind of unapproachable and and seeing himself as above everybody else. But Gamaliel was a man among men. His, his, uh, his, His learning was so strong that history shows that his character and his learning and his education and his reputation was so revered that he was one of only seven men that had been given the title Rabban. And his credibility was so high that it was said of him when he died that regard for the Torah, which was the Jewish law, that regard for the Torah ceased and purity and piety died. That's how powerful Gamaliel's reputation was. So he's no slouch at this point. He's studied, he's prepared, he's built up a reputation. But he's also somebody who's regarded by everybody as as respectable and worthy of listening to. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs 22.1 that a good name is more desirable than great riches. But I wonder how often our pursuit of a good reputation is as fervent as our pursuit of material possession. How much time do we spend? Oh, I wish I had that, and I wish I could do that, and I wish I could go there, and I wish I could be with those people, and I wish I could, I wish I could, wish I could, wish I could. And yet... How often do we say, I wish my reputation was unsullied. I wish when people said my name that they would say, that person walks with the Lord. That person has a heart that is for people. That person has, has a gift of, of mercy and a gift of teaching and a gift of prayer. And, and they just, boy, boy, when you talk about that person, it's like, wow, they stand out. When people hear your name, 
When people hear my name, when people hear the name of this church, what do they think? What's your reputation? And how well does that honor the name of Jesus? See, as believers, when our character is holy and respectable, it makes us more credible. When we've studied and we've prepared and we know what we believe, it makes us more credible. Gamaliel looked back at it. He was deeply respected. So even though the Pharisees are strict and intolerant and hostile toward the apostles, in this volatile moment, he stands up and convinces them that they need to listen to his rational, wise argument. So first of all, he had a personal spiritual credibility. Second of all, he was a teacher. Now, you may know Gamaliel's name from Acts 22 because Paul said, I studied under Gamaliel. He said, this is why, as he's arguing before Felix and Festus, he says, this is why I have credibility to talk to you today because I studied under the greatest teacher. Now, saying he was Gamaliel's student was like saying, I studied physics under Einstein. Gamaliel was that high up. He was that respected as a teacher. And the proof of his capability as a teacher is the fact that Paul was so brilliant in terms of logic and persuasiveness and zeal. When you read the book of Romans, Paul acts as a prosecutor and a defense attorney. He makes a powerful case for Christ while offsetting any argument that people might have against Christianity. Then when you go to 1 and 2 Corinthians, he's much more pastoral, and he calls out sin, and he teaches them, this is how we are supposed to live as recipients of God's grace. And he calls them out on, on what they've done wrong and, and tries to train them theologically and practically. What is it to live for Christ? And then when you go to the pastoral epistles, excuse me, the, the prison epistles, Ephesians and Philippians and 2 Timothy, Paul takes a completely different tack. Now he's passionate. Personally persuading, this is why we love the Lord. This is how you walk with the Lord. Come on, stand firm now. Keep going. Be content in Him. Call on His name. Paul, Paul switches gears. He learned all that under Gamaliel. How do we know that? We know that because that's what Gamaliel does right here in Acts 5. Wisdom, logic, zeal, persuasiveness, impartiality. And mixed into it, surprisingly, is a spiritual sensitivity. He doesn't just see this logically. Let's, let's lay out the rationale for why we shouldn't do it. He sees it with spiritual eyes. And it's easy to attribute Gamaliel's effectiveness to the fact that he was a teacher by profession. And then we can say very easily to ourselves, well, Paul, I'm not a teacher. I could never do what... I've had so many people say that to me over the years. I could never do what you do. How do you do that? You know, I'm just as insecure as the next guy standing up here. And every single one of us can do this. You say, well, no, I'd never be able to stand in the pulpit. Listen, you are teaching and influencing people all the time every day. As parents, at work, here at church... To friends and family, you and I are always communicating something. So ask yourself, what am I communicating? What am I passing on as a teacher? No matter how careful we are, no matter how much we try to manage it, our convictions will always come out. What we believe, what we stand for, what we value, it always bears itself out either through words or through actions. 
So when you're training your child and they're frustrating and they're not obeying and they're screaming, that's where your conviction comes out. That's where your character comes out. When a coworker curses the name of Jesus and yells at you and makes you feel like dirt because you're not doing the job right, that's where your character comes out. What comes out of your mouth next will talk about your conviction. It's a teaching moment. So what are we teaching those who are around us? Is it strong for the Lord or is it detrimental to the Lord? Now, this is especially important to ask in regard to our words because our words are so powerful. Our words either give life or they tear down. Our words either, either build up and strengthen and give life and encourage people or they destroy. Proverbs 18 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. James 3 says the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity, and it's able to defile the entire body and set on fire the course of our life. So we need to take a two-pronged approach. Not only do we need to be extremely intentional, not only to be sanctified in how we speak and how we communicate, but we also need to be just as intentional about edifying, teaching, passing on knowledge about the Lord, building up, strengthening, communicating that God is good, influencing people spiritually, and strengthening every single person we come in contact to know the Lord. Think of all the wise words that Gamaliel taught throughout his whole life as a top-level educator, as a high-ranking member of the Pharisees. Think about all the words that came out of Gamaliel's mouth. In all that time, there is only one other sentence recorded in history that he said. It's in the Talmud, and it's something about the importance of study and observing the law. And nobody reads that today. But 2,000 years later, we're sitting here in Wisconsin, and we're reading his words. And these six sentences that he says have more historical influence and do more to advance the cause of Christ than all the other words that he said combined. Six sentences that are recorded, seven sentences total in history, are recorded by Gamaliel. And we have six of them here, and these six are powerful. So he was a teacher. He was respected. Third, would you see that he took a stand among his peers? Why? Because he had a deep conviction. Remember, there are hundreds of men around him, all of who are convinced that Jesus was a threat, that the church needs to be stopped, that the apostles need to be squashed. So the level of pressure here of taking any kind of opposing viewpoint would have been absolutely immense. But Gamaliel is convinced that his conviction is right. And listen, when you believe your conviction is right, you will have no problem making a persuasive argument about it. We argue, I hate talking about football in church, but we argue Bears and Packers, right? Like with a fervency. We show up with our clothes, uh, and it's like, you know, life or death. Who's going to win Bears-Packers this year? And you know what? There will be two games this year, and you know what? There will be two games next year. And there were two games last year. 
And we got all worked up. Oh, Packers are better than Aaron Rodgers, Jay Cutler. We got all that garbage, right? But listen, how often do we say, I'm so convinced about Jesus Christ that I'm going to make a persuasive argument about him, and you better listen. This, this issue has become so obvious in our political discourse. There are strongly held beliefs on both sides. But you notice, if you watch closely the news, when an argument is obviously false, especially from a spiritual standpoint, notice how quickly it descends into accusation and lying and name-calling instead of logic. There's so, if you, if you just listen to the news, I don't care which channel, CNN, Fox, NBC, I don't care. Just pick one. As the, as the five heads are yelling at each other, right? You know, and it just, it hurts my brain. Like, I can't do it anymore. You know how little logic there is in that? And how much name-calling and just kind of, uh, and you said this, and they said that. And, 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 you know, we now developed the term fake news because there's so much garbage. Guess who uses accusation and lying as a regular course of action? The enemy. We know he can't use truth. We know he can't use logic. We know he can't use rational thought because he hates truth. We don't know, and history is debated, where, where Gamaliel stands spiritually. There's a lot of speculation that maybe he was convinced by the gospel. But the complete logic of his defense here shows that it is true. He says, guys, stop for a second. First of all, let's analyze this. There have been two movements that have taken place prior to this. There was Thutius and there was Judas. They both had some followers. They both were very popular. We got a little stirred up about it, but they both flamed out. They, they faded. People realized they had no credibility. Both of them were put to death, and, and, and they're not around anymore. So let's apply the same logic to the apostles. If they're working in their own plans, if this is just them and their abilities and they're trying to create a movement against us, it will fail, just like the other one's done. But, but if not, if this is of God, if, if that's what's really going on, then we better back off. Because it will be a losing battle. We'll look at that more in a minute, but before we do, look back at Gamaliel. He's putting himself here in a position that will completely ruin his life if he's wrong. Everything is on the line here. All the years of credibility, all the years of teaching, all the respect, all the authority, that will quickly disappear at once if he's wrong about defending the apostles. But his conviction is so strong that he has no other choice. He could have stayed silent. He could have sat in the back shaking his head and come back later and say, I told you guys. But instead, he stands up and he says, this is right. I know this is right, so I have to say something. Is that our conviction? We, we praise the Lord this morning, right? We closed our eyes. We raised our hand. We maybe shed some tears. We sang with all our voices, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. Oh, it was so wonderful. We praise the Lord this morning. Now we're going to walk out. Is that the same conviction we're going to have tomorrow at work? 
Are we going to have the same boldness, the same vocalness, the same, the same outgoingness to say, oh, Jesus, how I trust him. And I know I'm going through difficulty right now, but I'm going to tell you, Jesus Christ is my Savior and he's my Lord and the Holy Spirit indwells me. And I'm so confident that God will answer my prayer and minister to me. Because it's right. It's right. It's not just something I, I hope is true. It's, it's right. Now, why don't we do that? Well, two reasons. First of all, we're scared to defend our convictions because we think people are going to reject us. And you know what? We're absolutely right. People will reject us. Jesus said people are going to reject you. But that shouldn't stop us because there are going to be so many people that are hungry to hear truth, that are hungry to find purpose, that are hungry to find meaning in their life, and they're wandering through every day like spiritual zombies, staring at the news, staring at the culture, not knowing one day to the next why they are here, and we have the answer. We can't let the fear of rejection stop us. The other reason why we may not do it is because we're not prepared. We're not prepared to make our case. If this was a courtroom this morning and there was a witness stand right here to my left and someone said, come up right now and explain the gospel. Come up right now and defend the Lord and, and, and make a case that, that we need to believe. How strong would our defense be? Now, if you feel unprepared by that and even intimidated by the thought, let me ask very gently in love, and I mean that with all my heart, very gently in love, let me ask, when are you going to be ready? And what steps are you taking actively today to be ready? Many years ago, a skeptic named Josh McDowell set out to disprove Christianity he was looking at it on a logical and empirical basis, and he was going to do extensive research with the aim, the stated aim, to discount Christianity once and for all. And as he did his research and his study, he became so convinced by the facts and the truth that he wrote one of the greatest treatises in Christianity, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. A thick book saying, this is why I believe. And I didn't start out that way. I started out to disprove it. Now you say, well, come on, Paul, I'm never going to write a book. That's fine. But how well can you defend even the basics of what you believe? Because every single one of us, listen now, is on the witness stand every day. And we may get discouraged, and we may say, well, the court is biased, and there's no way you're going to get a fair hearing from the people you're trying to convince because there's so much opposition to Christianity now. Paul, you talk about it all the time. There's so much reaction against Jesus in our culture. But listen, never forget that the judge of all things is the Lord. And he says, if you stand and defend me before men, I will stand and defend you before the Father is in heaven. So don't be hesitant, don't be scared, don't think, well, people are going to reject me. Don't, don't keep saying, well, I, I just, I, I don't know enough. Well, then learn. Get in the Word, study it, find out. Look at our doctrinal statement on the website. Go through it point by point. Look up the verses, 10 or 12 verses for every point of doctrine on our website. Look them up, see it, study it. Take weeks and weeks and weeks and learn it. So when somebody says, what's the reason why you believe in Jesus? You go, oh, I've been waiting to tell you. 
You want it point by point? You want it alphabetical? You want it numerical? How do you want it? I can tell you. But I am convinced. I am convinced. Every day, you and I are making persuasive arguments, and we're to make a strong defense of our biblical convictions, supported by the word, not by our opinion, evidenced by our changed lives. And when we do that, the Spirit empowers us, and He stirs us to take two very important actions. First, write these down. Like Gamaliel, we will warn others when we see a spiritual danger. We need to warn other people when we see a spiritual danger. If you were sitting there this morning and you saw a cobra slithering toward me, ready to strike, would you tell me? You better. I hate snakes. And that thing's deadly. And it's poisonous. And if it gets to me and it bites me, I'm going to die. So I would hope you would warn me. We were doing a baptism once at Village Creek. We had just finished. And I hear some little kid yell, snake! And I look, and there's this, like, five-foot-long snake coming right at me. I hate snakes. I can't tell you how much I hate snakes. Baptism was done. If we had had four more, we would have sprinkled. I was done. We were eating lunch the other day, and Jacob came into the room, and he was hungry and took a big spoonful of what he thought was chicken salad. And he brings it toward his mouth, and I go, Bud, that's tuna. Should have seen the look on his face. My son does not like tuna. I warned him about tuna fish. But I wanted to help him, right? I didn't want him to suffer. I didn't want him to gag. Come on, I'm being silly, but listen now. We're supposed to warn people that they're going to hell. We're supposed to warn people that they're on the wrong track, that they are facing pain and suffering and torment that is un imaginable. This is just logical. We need to tell them. So why do we get all shy and reticent and hesitant to warn people that if they continue to reject Christ and they continue to live the lifestyle that we used to live and we aren't living now, that they are going to suffer? Gamaliel, look at the text, says we are at risk Listen, men, we are at risk of opposing God himself. And if we are wrong, and I think we may be, we are going to be in a fight against God himself. We better stop. It is essential that we take the same stance because we love the Lord and we love people and we're not any more willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance than Jesus is. Think about the courts. When is a lawyer most passionate about making their argument? It's because when they're concerned, there is the danger of a wrong verdict. 
And that's what Gamaliel is here. He's an attorney. He says, look, there is a burden in my heart and my mind. Something's going on here that we're not seeing. This is not just a trend. It's not just a movement. It's not just a legal issue. It's not even a fight against the disciples because they didn't do what we said. We are in a fight against God himself. And how many know you should never be in a fight against God? So men... We better stop because, bottom line, the Pharisees hadn't feared God. They hadn't been scared to fight God. We know that because Jesus said, you're unwashed tombs. In other words, you are spiritually dead and hypocritical. And we know it's true because they didn't recognize Jesus as the Son of God. They, re they rejected the truth that came from his lips, and they refused to repent when he called them out, and they put him on the cross. And in many ways, this council is a picture of our world this morning because we have lost our fear of God. We have lost our fear of God even among Christianity. And the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Gamaliel knows this. And he's so fearful of opposing God that he argues for the defense. That's our calling. And when we do that, there's a second result, and then we're going to pray. Look at verse 40. They took his advice. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Our first job is to warn people when there's spiritual danger. Our second job is that the power of our lives should be so strong that even our enemies will testify that the gospel's true. Gamaliel says, don't have anything to do with these guys. We need to release them. The proof of God's presence and God's power was so strong that even hundreds of hostile opponents who had crucified Jesus himself agree. So they flog them and they warn them, oh, don't, don't go talking about Jesus now. But, but they know. You can tense it in the text. They know that they're beaten. They know that they have no authority. And the apostles go out and they praise God. They say, we got to be beaten for Christ. We get to serve God. And they don't say, all right, you know, guys, we better chill for a while. Let's, let's get some heat off of us. Nope. They go right back to the temple. They go right back house to house, and they preach the gospel with even more conviction and power. And their credibility comes from the presence and the power of the Spirit in their lives, and from that point on, even with increased opposition, the gospel spreads throughout the world, and the foremost person that's going to take the gospel to the world is Gamaliel's prize student, Paul. All the credibility that he had Years of study, years of building his reputation, years of being a Pharisee. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee too. All, all those years of persuading his students, Gamaliel had built all that up. His conviction, his authority, everything. And the apostles had none of that. No education, no training, no reputation, no people that they had taught. 
they were mocked for their lack of ability and their lack of experience and their lack of social status. But listen, they had something that no one else, not even Gamaliel had, because if you look back at chapter 413, it says that even though they looked at their deficiencies, that the, that the Sanhedrin recognized that the apostles had been with Jesus. Peter didn't have any education. He was a fisherman in Galilee, lived in Capernaum. He didn't go to the finest schools. He didn't study under Gamaliel. He was just a guy. John, Andrew, Thomas, the whole lot. Nothing. Worthless in terms of society. Worthless in terms of social standing. They couldn't stand up against these guys. But they had something that that group didn't have. They had the power of God. They had been with Jesus. And when we have been with Jesus, listen now very carefully. It erases all personal inadequacies, and it makes us bold and powerful and influential. When you and I walk in the power of the Spirit, He will pour out His strength and pour out His gifts on us. And the Bible even says, when you're in a moment where you don't know what to say, the Spirit of God will give it to you. Think about how fully our influence will extend if we do develop ourselves and we do study and we do prepare and we do learn and we do use our gifts in a way to serve the Lord, our witness will be unstoppable just like it is from chapter 5 on. Unfortunately, the church in 2017 is undereducated and underdeveloped and immature in these areas because we've used techniques instead of fervently seeking the Lord and becoming well-educated and discipling and being holy in our character, and saying, Holy Spirit, use us. So we're going to stop that one church at a time. And we're going to be a church that does that. We're going to develop people spiritually. We're going to educate. We're going to train. We're going to learn how to study the Word more and more. And we're going to support and pray for every single church that does that, every single missionary that does that, every single ministry that does that. Because when we do this, I'm done, the Spirit of God will fill us, and He will give us confidence and strength and opportunities to influence people for Christ. Gamaliel, the unexpected witness, the surprise witness for the defense, the one who stands up and says, hey, we're wrong and they're not. How much more can we, who are God's children and spirit-filled disciples, powerfully persuade people to trust in Jesus?